Welcome, welcome everybody back with another episode of the Severe MMA Podcast Premium. And with me today is veteran Irish journalist Philip O'Connor. Philip's out in Sweden and he's covering all things worldwide, Ireland, sports, politics, the whole lot. Phil, how are things? Things are absolutely brilliant, Sean. And do you know what I want to do just before we get started here? I want right. to say direct words to the people who are sponsoring this on Patreon. I love you. You are brilliant. You are fantastic. This is the way forward. Huge respect to you and Graham for going down this route because this to me is the future of the business. It's going to be, you know, people supporting the things that they're interested in and that kind of thing. And I'd really like to say a huge thank you to the people who are supporting you already. Go tell your mates how great it is and keep supporting it. No, but things are brilliant with me. There's loads to do. There's always football on at the Winter Olympics there, looking forward to the World Cup, the Swedish soccer season starts now over the weekend, that kind of thing. So, and then there's, there's always the UFC and local things. There's it's just loads to do, you know yourself. I was bored out of my head for the last two or three weeks there with no UFC, no, with the, this international soccer. I hate international soccer. I really do. It just takes away good soccer. That, that's all it does, really. Do you, do you hate it as much as I do, or do you kind of like it? Do you know, I kind of look at it the other way, right? Because money has kind of poisoned the game so much with the Champions League. I despise the Champions League, even though it was created by a Swede, Leonard Johansson. Um, I, I really hate it now because like, it's just it's gerrymandered to a situation where only you know top 10 clubs can win it. An Irish club's never going to get into group stages, you know, that kind of thing. So international football is still the great leveller, you know, because, I mean, like a small team like Iceland can still make it to the World Cup. That's not going to happen in club football anymore. But I understand, you know, for people, especially when the UFC was off, and then you have the international football break as well. I mean, that's like Lent for sports fans, like, you know. So it's, it's a tough one right enough. But the other thing is, Sean, that it kind of makes us appreciate it. You know, it's kind of like December for Gaelic Games fans. You know, you might get the odd club match here and there, but it makes you appreciate when the league starts in January and things start to hot up in February again. You know, so every now and again, it's a feast. Most of the time, though, or most of the time it's a feast these days. But sometimes we have to have the famine to make it appreciate us and make yeah. us appreciate it. That's true. It's not as bad as GA though. Did you see because of the bad weather there last week, there were a couple of games called off and in the GA just decided to make the games null and void. I think Limerick were playing Wicklow or something like that and Waterford and yeah. Waterford and Carroll or something. It's like, no, we just won't bother. And the managers like agreed, okay, we'll play them in like a month's time just so we yeah. can finish off our league. Yeah. Like what the it's, it's, but it's kind of like what happened in Greece there. Did you see the guy going into one of the the club directors going into the, the football pitch with the gun there about two weeks ago? Oh, I heard about it, yeah. No more games, no more games now. All the games are banned. They go, well, when are we going to play again? We'll get back to you about that. But the GA there just could have gone, you know, ah, that's it. Yeah, forget it. We won't bother with any of that, you know. But unfortunately, the Greek thing, you have Champions League places and Europa League places. But the guys are lot to themselves, you know, that just said. They're just like, all right, we don't have time now. And there's so many games now. Like, you know, when I was growing up uh, in the 70s and the 80s and going to watch the dubs on, from Hill 16 and that kind of thing, you know, you might there was very few inter-county games every year. But now they're seeing... Then they used to call them challenge matches, you know. Friendlies would be called challenge matches, which I know they're playing every other week, and the club scene is huge as well. You know, I'm not knocking it, but I mean, there's just so many games, especially for an amateur sport, it's almost unsustainable, you know. Yeah, the GA's kind of gone mad, all right? Like, it's so badly organized as well for a, a sport that's kind of driven by people who are good at organizing things. At the kind of the top level, it seems to be very badly organized the whole way around. But I, I, I want to ask you, I, I'm into ask you the question. We'll we, we get into our main topics in a few minutes. But yeah. the, the League of Ireland, you're a big fan of the League of Ireland, right? And I don't really care about the League of Ireland. Really. But I, my question I want to ask you is, this thing where they're calling it the greatest league in the world. Like, is, is that is, okay, it's obviously a piss take and stuff. But people like use the hashtag all the time. And is that not a bit weird? Is it just, is it like? Oh. Is it treating the league like it's a parody? 
No, I think it's very tongue in cheek, you know, because, you know, Irish international fans, especially those who go to the away games where the Irish national team plays, refer to themselves as the greatest fans of the world. You know, we saw all the footage from Euro 2016, changing the wheels of the cars and helping the old people across the road and that kind of thing. It is tongue in cheek. I mean, they are the redheaded stepchild of, of Irish sports. Nobody likes them. Everybody likes to see things go badly for them. But again, getting back to what I said about the Real Madrid and the big clubs and the money and, you know, the money that players are being paid and that kind of thing. Look, the thing that gives me most joy, I've worked with sport for a long time, Shani, and the thing that gives me most joy is leaving my house on a Saturday afternoon, walking the 300 yards up to the football pitch and seeing local young fellas pull on the shirt, right? And they're playing for a local club. It could be, you know, the club that I played for or whatever, and watching them fellas. And for me, it's the same thing to go to the Dalyman Park and watch Bohemians and watch, you know, the sons of my friends playing there and that kind of thing. Look, because there's that local thing. I know you're a big uh, Premier League fan, a big Manchester United fan, and I'm not saying that's wrong at all. Like, you know, but the connection that you feel to, to a club in England and the connection people feel to a local club, it's the same love, but it's different, you know? And I'd love a situation where here in Sweden and especially in Norway, it's amazing. Like, because you might have a club like Rosenborg or you might have Wallering in, in, in Oslo or Strömskötset and these places, you know? But apart from that, everybody cheers for Liverpool. So the whole country is full of Liverpool fans. Never gone to Sweden. Yeah, exactly. But they all go to their local team as well. And the same thing here, because um, in the deep, dark winters here, where they used to only have three uh, three channels, they would show an English uh, top flight match. It was before it was the Premier League and even, indeed, even after it was the Premier League on a, a Saturday afternoon. We're an hour ahead of you, so it would have been four o'clock. So the dark winter evenings were brilliant. I remember seeing Newcastle hammering Spurs 7-1 or something a good few years back, you know. Uh, so people, they have that, but they also have the local thing and the local pride there as well. And the League of Ireland has never really sort of cracked that particular nut. There's a huge amount of competition with rugby with Gaelic games and on all these other things as well but it's never really sort of found that niche because you know yourself in Limerick there in Limerick is a very good case actually because you have a rugby community and they never stray outside the rugby community you have a gal community and they never stray outside that and you have a soccer community and they never stray outside that and it's even more so in Limerick than, than that is in Dublin in Dublin people sort of go from the GA to rugby and that's not a big thing but Limerick seems to be you know people sort of stay in their lane a little bit more but it would be brilliant if you know Limerick City or Bows or Pats or all these other clubs I don't know if Ireland can sustain a professional league, but it can certainly sustain the interest of more people. I think more people could go and go to see it. And I, like, I love going to see live sport. If I have the choice between sort of watching a sort of a, a local match down here in Division Four or going to see the Swedish top flight, I'll often go up the road. Not just because it's easier, but because I feel a greater connection to it. You know? Do you think there's like a disconnect in Ireland in, in when we're looking at the the League of Ireland between? Dublin and everywhere else in the country because you know you said there when you, you're kind of young you love seeing your local guys going out playing soccer in Dalymount Park or whatever like yeah. I don't have that like I use that with the GAA like well, I went yeah. you know even a bit rugby because obviously living in Limerick and I suppose that's different maybe for everyone else but I, there's a lot of local guys like Conor Murray's like 10 minutes down the road for me and stuff international but for, for me and I think for a lot of people maybe not in Dublin there is that disconnect you know, between even the League of Ireland, which is supposed to be your local league, and, uh, you know, the, the, the GA or whatever. There's no, the, the disconnect between the GA and the people doesn't seem to be there for me in, in that case. Do you think, that, like, that's why maybe, because it's very Dublin central, I think, the soccer, even though there's, you know, obviously Cork and Limerick, maybe it's the city central more than anything, but yeah. do you think that disconnect is a reason why it can't really take off and be huge? 
Oh, oh, I think that's a huge part of it because people don't feel a part of it. The GAA, it runs through our veins. You know, we play Gaelic football here in Stockholm. You know, we have done for 10 years and people coming over here and when they realise it's Gaelic football here, they're overjoyed, you know, because they can still get to play it. So the GAA is very much a part of us. But if you look at men like uh, like Eamon Dunphy and Johnny Giles, and men who grew up kicking a football in the streets, well, I grew up kicking a football in the street in Dunny Kearney in Dublin, you know. But like at that stage, you know, the GAA was more the, sort of the, the, the religion, if you like, you know, whereas uh, with soccer it was very much a garrison game you know you had the ban for many years where you couldn't play my father used to he's from Inchicore in Dublin so he's a bit of a Pats fan but he used to play in goal so that if his father came along and saw him playing on the road he'd be handling the ball and he could convince him that he was playing Gaelic football you know this kind of a mentality so this went on for a long time and in a way it's unfortunate because we're a small country and it should really be even from the development perspective it should be that we play as many games as possible for as long as possible so you play rugby and you play hurling and you play football and you play soccer and this kind of thing you know so for that point of view but historically because of the ban and it was seen as a garrison game and something the British soldiers brought us and that, you know, it, that's, there is definitely a dichotomy there. There's something wrong there and it is sort of limited to certain cities and certain areas. Sligo has always been a very uh, strong uh, football stronghold up in, uh, in Donegal as well, Finn Harps and this kind of thing. You know, So it's a shame really that hasn't spread to other parts of the country but I think it is that thing as well. We live in the shadow of the Premier League. There's so many people who support those things. Remember during the Celtic Tiger and Dublin Airport would be full on a Saturday yeah. morning at seven o'clock with fellas, you know, drinking pints of Guinness and Manchester United shorts, you know. My, my I had a season ticket, I think, at the time. Yeah, yeah. And like a friend of mine who lived in London had a season ticket for Arsenal for many years. Peter Sheridan, the great Irish writer, uh, it's the brother Jim Sheridan, the film director. Peter yeah. used to be over and back the whole time, even long before it became a sort of a trendy thing to do because he was a real diehard United fan. But he also went to see Shelburne. And, you know, Peter's kind of my idol in that way because, you know, he had the gods of best child in the law that he grew up loving and Eric Cantona at that time as well. But he also had Jason Bourne and Wesley Hulham before Wesley Hulham was anybody. And that to me is the thing as well, Sean. It's to see these guys like, I was talking to ESPN last night. I saw Zlatan 17 years ago for the first time on April the 21st, uh, 2001, right? I was playing for Malmo and I looked at him and went, my God, that bloke is doing things that I've never seen a Swede do with the ball. And that was the start of the love affair for me. You know, at times I don't get on great with the bloke but I've always loved him as a footballer you know and that to me is like you know if you can see Wes Hooland if you can see Shamey Combe if you can see all these lads in the beginning that in turn inspires um more the, the next generation to play and that kind of thing so you know there's a lot of love go down one of these days you know what I'll do I'll come down to Limerick and the two of us will sod off to a game together we'll have a bag of chips and a bit of a natter and it wouldn't surprise me if you went back there some Friday night we did nothing better to do you know sounds, sounds like a, sounds, sounds sounds like like a good time, like a good sounds time. Like a good time. <laughs> make it a good time alright look last thing here before we move in um, onto the next couple of subjects what did you think and I'm not sure if you saw it or not but I think it was Neil Francis wrote an article I believe in was the Times or the Indo last week about rugby becoming the national sport of Ireland and to me that's that's completely laughable what did you think about that yeah you know what I see where he's coming from at the same time as I split my sides laughing you know mm -hmm. um, rugby has been for me like the history of rugby is interesting especially there in Limerick and in places sort of outside of Dublin and in Ulster too rugby was very much a working class game in certain parts of the country right and uh, but that wasn't true in the Dublin private schools and that and that's what made it so interesting because it became a sort of a melting pot working class lads from Munster and Ulster playing against these lads from Leinster and that I mean it's a hugely popular game it's a very aspirational game it's a game where rich people play and rich people do things and you see them driving big cars and that kind of thing i mean 
my father, as I said, my father never drank or smoked, right? But he just loves sport. And from the moment I walk through that door in Duddy Carney, if I'm over there for a few days, to the moment I walk out, he'll talk about any sport. He'll talk about boxing or he'll talk about Conor McGregor. He'll talk about rugby. He loves the Irish rugby team. And he's passed that on to me. Now, where I go nuts in front of the television, but I have no interest in rugby, really, Sean, outside of the Irish national team. That's the only thing I care about. And the only thing I care about when they play is when they play competitive games. I've no interest in tours or anything else like that, you know? So, and the problem with rugby as well is that, you know, the Premier League has this sort of you know, 38 game season. It's a perennial sort of a thing. And I don't think that, you know, the diehard rugby fans in Munster and Leinster, Ulster, Connacht, who travel around to see their teams, uh, they, they love it and they'll go and see all the games. But I don't think the casual fan has as much interest. It's a bit like the whole country will tune in when Connor's fighting, but they've no, no, none of them would know who who Paddy Pimblett was. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So th th this is where it's at. I don't think it'll ever be the national game. I think that, you know, Gaelic football and hurling have sewn it up. Uh, you know, I've said for years that, you know, Gaelic football is a game, but hurling is an art. And I think that's where we are as, as a people. I think the thing that brings us all together ever since 1988, 1990, 1994, everybody can gather around the international soccer team, even if it's fallen off a little bit in recent years. Rugby would love to be that, but I just don't think that there's enough people out there to make it the national game as such. Yeah, like I think the problem with rugby as well is when you have national games like hurling and football that are so ingrained into people, something that's really only come around in the last, what, 20 years, it, it just can't do that. And it's it's more of a pastime than a passion, I think, for people like it's I'm, I kind of joke about it, but it's the kind of thing like the, your, your boyfriend and girlfriend go and wearing matching scarves on a night out, you know, you know, standing stand in the front row of freezing cold and and oh, we go again in four or five months time. And I, I, to me, like it's it's definitely changing and it will get there probably. But at the moment, to call it a national sport when you have hurling and when you have football and I just... I can't see that at all. I can't see the argument for it. Now, a lot of people are arguing with me it's what we're best at and stuff, but that, does that really matter? And it's not what we're best at. We're better, best at hurling and football. And I think yeah, that's... But, you know. but the thing is as well, you know, there's a limited number of play. You know, there's been a lot of cricket mm -hmm. in the news lately. Oh, what the hell are we talking about cricket for? You know, when there's literally only 10 nations that play it. Rugby is quite similar. So yeah. we're the best of a very, very limited gene pool at the moment, you know. Um, it is enjoyable. Like the professionalism of rugby happened at a time when marketing and communications was burgeoning and you could literally turn anything into a product. And when I left Ireland in 1999, rugby was still where rugby was. It was a professional game, but it was still, you know, uh, solicitors from Dublin and farm lads from Limerick and, you know, lawyers from or doctors from, from Ulster who are playing the game, right? Now it's become something t totally different. On a playing level, you're getting sort of younger schoolboys playing it who don't go to Wesley in these places. So it's grown in that way, but it was definitely turned into a product and then sold to the masses. Like back in the day, the, pr the provinces were interesting, but the provinces only played a couple of games here and there. You know, it was the clubs that were the big thing, especially in Limerick, Clontarf near where I'm from would have been the big thing there, you know. And they were very sort of insular in their own way. They didn't want anybody else coming in. But now they've done, they've gone the other way and they've opened it up to the masses and they've invented this huge cash cow and of course, then what you need is you need to have the provinces on, you need to have the national team on, you need to have the World Cup, you know. But like you say, I mean, there's nothing gets the fires burning on a summer Sunday afternoon, like a game of hurling, you know, two of the great hurling counties, two of the great football counties facing off in Crow Park or in Tullamore or somewhere like that. You know, I don't think rugby will ever be able to do that. You know, Leinster and Munster over Christmas, you know, that's a great game. It's a great occasion. But the GAA could have those occasions every weekend if it wanted to. Yeah, like... I, I was saying kind of on the podcast last week, Ireland could win the World Cup final and I wouldn't feel nearly as passionate about it as, as I did with Limerick playing Galway in the league there a couple of weeks ago and not in a final or anything, just in, in to get it. And I don't know, maybe that's just me, but I think a lot of people kind of feel that way. And, and while that's there, uh, you know, I think it's going to be a problem. But as you mentioned cricket there, but people might not know about cricket. 
was kind of my MMA before MMA when I was like 14, 15, 16 in school. I absolutely loved cricket for about five or six years, maybe a little bit more until I started getting into MMA and stuff. Uh, and I just couldn't do it. And I get in, got into college and stuff. I couldn't sit up in the middle of the night watching. I absolutely loved cricket. And it's weird to see every kind of maybe few years something happens with Ireland doing unbelievably well in the World Cup that time. And now, obviously, this ball tampering um, scenario with, with Australia. What, what's your take? What, what's your take? Are you are you a cricket fan, or are you just kind of ingrained in this, like everyone else seems to be all around the world? Do you know what? I've I've a sort of a passing interest in cricket. You know, and I was on the Reuters sports desk in London the day beat Ireland beat England in the World Cup. I'll tell you that was uncomfortable because you know those people love their cricket, and now comes these upstart neighbours, you know, coming over here and beating us at our own game, so to speak. So you know, I was actually on the way to the airport as soon as the game was over, and I was very glad of it. I can tell you, I mean, cricket is a tremendous game. It's there's so many people play it. You know, so it's 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 like rugby except for you know large parts of Asia. In India, it's absolutely massive. There's a man owns an Indian restaurant near where I live here in Stockholm. Every time I go in there, I talk to him about cricket. I don't keep up with it. Everything I know about it, he tells me about it. He had tickets for the World Cup uh, final last time. We were on flights, the whole lot. India didn't make it. He didn't go. And he was devastated afterwards and this kind of thing, you know. So it's a huge game. And it really does sort of, you know, it, it, like it, the five or six years you spent being interested in it, you know, you'll watch everything. You'll watch 2020, yeah. you'll watch one dayers, you'll watch test match, match cricket if you had the chance. But you know what was absolutely amazing? I actually live quite close to a cricket pitch here where you'd have, uh, you know, programmers who come to work for Ericsson. Ericsson are very close to where I live here in Stockholm. You have the programmers from India and Pakistan, but the, their latest sort of crop of players that are coming through, they aren't computer engineers. They're young refugees who came here from Afghanistan in 2015 and these kids never thought that they would see the game again and here they are playing it up the road for me and they're overjoyed to see this game because cricket's huge in Afghanistan they might not be any fucking use in it but they absolutely love the game you know and to see the joy that these lads get out of it you know and that they have their Sachin Tendulkar they have these like really really big names that are like Cristiano Ronaldo or Messi or whoever else Brian Lara back in the day was a tremendous batsman and they go like anybody would with with you know an MMA fandom or a soccer fandom or a rugby fandom they love the game just as much and that alone for me like the Irish you know playing Gaelic football over here the fact that it gives that that many people so much joy is just such a fantastic thing to see yeah actually you mentioned Brian Lara I remember what one of my favorite moments ever watching sport was watching Brian Lara score 400 he's I think he's the only person still to ever do it it was just unbelievable to watch someone as brilliant as that in his palm but cricket's kind of known as a sport that's unbelievably kind of fair and sporting oh yeah and this has changed like ball tampering has happened before england and the ashes in 2005 i believe were caught with like throat lozenges and like rubbing it onto the ball and there was i think india a couple of years ago were caught with it as well but this seems to have just just blown out of all proportion and i think maybe a part of it will is because australia are you know they can be quite pompous and stuff, and and because they're one of the best in the world and have been, you know, give, apart from a few years where kind of England take over in South Africa and so for the last 20, 25 years, but it's the way it's taken off has just been absolutely insane. And Darren Lehman, the coach, has has quit as well today. Do you like? Do you think it's kind of been blown out of proportion? 
I don't because it's always been the gentleman's game and there's a sort of an ethos that goes with cricket that is as much a part of itself as the bat and the ball and this is the way that these things are supposed to be done like I mean I remember when when like only a few days ago when this scandal started to break right and everybody who listens to the podcast probably knows by now that I do a lot of work for the Reuters news agency uh, so about 50% of my time is spent working for them so I'm in constant contact with the desks around the world in Melbourne and in uh, Seoul in uh, Toronto in in London this kind of thing I want to broke and everybody's going okay we want every reaction possible it doesn't matter who it's from if it's from a batsman or that kind of thing this story in australia is massive and then it broke out and it became a huge story in india pakistan afghanistan england zimbabwe south africa it's absolutely enormous because it really is it's the like it's it's an existential crisis for the sport that one of the huge nations this is like you know uh, when suarez bit uh, Chiellini. you know i mean i worked on that story when i was in brazil for that world cup and literally nothing else mattered for 24 hours now the nature of cricket is that always goes on longer than everything else so we're gonna have to put up with this for another five days but it is like it's so it's so against the grain of what cricket is supposed to be about and that's the thing that you know that's what makes it news this is man bites dog for sport you know and that's what's keeping it in the headlines for all these days and it'll keep it in the headlines for days to come yes it's so odd because as you said like cricketers give themselves out if they're out if they're if they nick on the bat they'll just walk like it's it, if people don't understand cricket it's like the equivalent of the ball going going past the line and the goalkeeper saying yep. that was a goal you know yep. not trying to deny it you know and, and they do that all the time so for this to happen it, it's a bit weird and i suppose this this can kind of segue us to what we were supposed to discuss 20 minutes ago but we, we'll get into it now anyway so it's a good conversation anyway and kind of mentality in sport and we were talking on, on dm the other day after we we were talking about it on the podcast about the paul craig uh magomed and kalaya fight and uh paul craig tapped uh magomed in the last second of the the third round, or was it the third round? It was the final round, wasn't it? Was it? The yeah. round. There was, yeah. uh, I think, it was thirty eight hundredths of a second to go when uh, when Paul put the triangle in and, and the other guy tapped. It was one of the most amazing things I've ever seen in MMA. So, what's your take on that? And if you you had a few thoughts on it about the kind of the mentality and this, uh, not just his mentality, but kind of an all round sporting mentality. Yeah, just in general, it's one of the things that fascinates me is the psychology of sport. You know, in this game, as a sports journalist, you meet a lot of athletes and they're like, everyone has their own story. They're driven in a different way. They see things in a different way. I used to play a lot of basketball in Dublin and I played uh, with a point guard who was the moniest sucker you could ever come across, right? Nothing was ever good enough for him, but that was his way of motivating himself, was to tell, tell himself and everybody else that they were terrible. Michael Jordan, the famous basketball player, was the same way. But then a lot of it comes down to the decisions that you make during the sport itself, right? And so many people were were sort of surprised there by what they were saying, uh, by that tap there, which, you know, 38 hundredths of a second to go. Like, all he had to do was hold out, and he tapped to a triangle there. And people go, how could he do that? How could he do that? I'll tell you how he could do that, right? There was no blood going to his brain. He had no idea what was going on there, no idea where the time was. He might have heard the clapper that signals that there's 10 seconds left in an MMA bout, but after that, it all went dark. I think I was saying to you sort of privately just after that, I was in the same situation. I went out to SBG in Tala with Paddy Hoolan a couple of years back, right? And Paddy was generous enough to show me. We were talking about the growth of the UFC and Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and all these things, and we did a thing live on Facebook where Paddy had a minute to basically take me down and choke me out, right? But before he did that, he showed me a triangle choke. He showed the Reuters viewers around the world how to do a triangle choke. And Sean, I'm not joking you. When Paddy gets that triangle choke locked in, the only thing you are thinking of is getting out of there or going to sleep, right? I had no idea what day it was. I had no idea what time it was. I was just tapping on Paddy's leg like a madman. I was tapping like Fred Astaire, you know? And that was why when I looked at that, I wasn't in one way, in one bit surprised. I think it's happened subsequently that there was a similar choke there that the guy tapped out to. But it is because of the fact that once... 
the, the blood stops going to your brain. This happens in soccer matches as well, right? You'll see guys do wild things at the end of a game. They're so tired that their heart can no longer pump enough blood to their brain for them to be able to make the correct decision. They don't know what's going on. They've no idea what's going on there. This is why it's so important to be anaerobically and aerobically fit in the whole thing. So when he tapped out there, I wasn't surprised at all. It was an absolutely tremendous triangle choke, but it gets so tight there that you don't know which way is up. You know, you don't know where the clock is. I'd say he didn't even know what round it was. Now, afterwards, you're going to go to him in the locker room and say, you know, well, why did you tap out with three tenths of a second? He's going to be disgusted with himself. But in that situation, especially when it comes to submissions, when you tap there, the only thing you want to do is you want the pain to stop or you want the blood to go back to the brain or you want to be able to breathe again. That's the only way it works, you know? I think it's a combination of kind of of biology and decision making at the same time. Like I think obviously the the choke was on type. We've seen guys put hard chokes on. He was literally tapped in like two seconds. So I don't think it's to put it down to that alone. And I I know you're not you're you're talking about sports mentality as well. But just, some people have. I don't think that's enough. But there. Yeah, and it's an important line here because us as kind of journalists talking about this who don't get in there and fight ourselves if, if you say someone you know he he tapped out he whatever word you want to use you know didn't have the heart to keep going on I, I, okay people get criticized for that but it's not that i don't think uh, it, you're kind of you kind of alluded to it there maybe, maybe it's a little bit of panic or maybe it's a little bit of i'm gonna go out i have to tap maybe he didn't realize the clock was there he yeah. just he kind of lost that head for that second. As you said, you know, the deans of games, we, we see it happening all the time. You know, Roy Keane was kind of famous for it. It happens <laughs> to lots of people. Yeah, but one of the things that I like, I mean, I do a bit of jujitsu. I have this thing, Sean, where if I'm going to cover a sport, I'll do a little bit of it just so I understand what it feels like. I am not for one second saying that I know what it feels like to be Paul mm-hmm. Craig putting in that try. That's not what I'm saying at all. I'm not saying I know what it feels like to score a goal in a Champions League final or to kick a point at Croke Park. No, but I do like to have experienced these things. I've tried out snowboarding and skiing and these kinds of things because I've covered them at the Olympics, cross-country skiing, mostly because it gives you great respect for what these top-level athletes do when you've gone you know just one kilometer on cross-country skis it's murderous if you have the wrong technique if you've been choked out by paddy hool and you know what it feels like for some of these guys to get into the cage warriors cage or the ufc cage or the bellator cage and you know before that i would have been you know before i'd ever done these things i'd often think you know ah jesus yeah well, why did he tap out to that then when you do it you know all about it you know and actually on what you were saying there today I was at the gym today doing a bit of jujitsu and a self-defense class for kids, right? And we were doing the guillotine choke from the front, right? And once that choke, it's like a rear naked choke. We all know when we look at the TV, when the elbow goes under the chin there and it's wrapped up, there's no getting out of it. Your defense there is to tap. That's it, you know? And certain techniques, when you've gotten to that point, like, like when Ronda Rousey used to get the armbar in, the, the defense of that, if you haven't got her leg off your face before it's locked in across it, the, the defense is to tap. So in some situations there, it doesn't matter that there's a tenth or two tenths of a second left. Like, you know, you're going to lose the fight. You know, I mean, he was ahead on points, mind you. But I do think there was that thing of panic. And then they're also conditioned, Sean, because, you know, you roll hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of rounds of jiu-jitsu or wrestling or whatever happens to be. You wind up in that situation and your natural reaction is to tap. And it's very, very little when the blood isn't going to the brain there you see the thing is that you make the rational decisions you know any game you play if you're playing soccer uh, you're, you're making decisions based on the stimuli that you find in the environment around you. So you say, okay, I'm a center forward, my back to goal. I reach out a hand. I feel the defender is behind me. I see the ball coming towards me. I see the winger running. I know I have to play it with one touch or they can take the ball. You're making these micro decisions all the time, right? If the blood with the oxygen doesn't go to the brain, you're going to make a total arse of yourself, right? And that's what sort of separates the guys who can go for 120 minutes in a World Cup final or in a 
World Cup semi-final and still make the good decision because they've run mile after mile after mile to make sure their body can operate there or they've rolled round after round after round of jiu-jitsu. You know yourself, championship fights, when it gets into the championship rounds of the UFC, this is the best thing you'll ever see. Fellas who are wiped out, still trying to do the right thing, make the right decision, make the right call and then go on to win the fight, you know? And that to me is what makes champions. It's the ability to do that when you've nothing else left. But I think the amazing thing about it is there's people can do that and they can do all those. They can do that 10,000 hours in the gym, and but they can get to that position and still fail. That's what I find absolutely amazing. And you said what makes champions. That is what makes champions. And But that's why champions and people at the, the real highest level are so rare. Like I'm sure there's lots of people in the history of, of soccer who have trained hard as hard, if not harder than Lionel Messi, have ate everything right their whole life, got all the right strength and conditioning, got all the right technique, everything, and they're not quarter of the player he will ever be. It, there is something, I think, ingrained in people, or not, maybe not uh, biology, but something that clicks with certain people to make them great as well. Every athlete you talk to who's finished their career, right, who hasn't reached that level or the level that they themselves uh, think that they should have reached, they always have that regret. And the regret is always that they weren't mentally strong enough, right? Because it takes mental strength to go and to work as hard as you need to work. And this is why the debate about Conor McGregor is so interesting, right? Conor talks, if you go to Las Vegas and you talk to the Irish community there in Las Vegas at the Re Raw pub in the Mandalay Bay, right? And their thing is always Conor talks, but he backs it up. He puts the work in, he puts the miles in out. And when he didn't do that in the first fight against Nate Diaz, by Christ, by the time the second fight came around, you know, I know he was pretty gassed at the end of the second fight as well, but his conditioning was an awful lot better than what it was there. There's a friend of mine, uh, a guy called Boyan Georgic. When I moved here in 1999, Boyan was bought from Bruma Poikana by Manchester United. Mm -hmm. He won the Jimmy Young Ward of Manchester United as the most promising player there, right? Played with Beckham, Neville, Scholes, Keane, Andy Cole, all these guys. He had Andy Cole down to our local football club here because they're still good mates. Boyan played one game. For Manchester United won. Now he won titles with Glasgow Rangers, Red Star Belgrade, Allborg and Denmark, AIK here. So he had a pretty good career, Sean. But if you ask him now, he will say, I should have worked harder. I should have listened to Alex Ferguson more. Because in the elite, if like if you don't have that mentality, if you don't have the ability to put your ego aside, you know, Connor, great and all as he is, Connor parks it and listens to John Kavanagh's fight plan. He listens to what Owen Roddy tells him to do in terms of striking, the leg kicks that took out Nate Diaz and they kept him in that fight when nothing else would, was going to work for him, you know? So to have that humility and to have that like that knowledge and the ability to park your ego and to go in there and to do that work, because that's what it takes. DJ Carey, a tremendous example of that. Henry Shefflin, a tremendous example of that. Johnny Sexton gets so many bangs in the head. Tremendous example. Dermot Connolly, the easiest man to wind up in the world, still is able to deliver. Um, Stephen Cluxton, you know? These are the guys that have it. And anybody who falls short, it's usually not the physical thing. Like, I played football against guys. I remember trying to... Mark Robert Perez one time, right? A great footballer. You know, he won huge amounts of things for Arsenal and Sevilla and played great in the French team and that kind of thing. Like, his mentality is just incredible. The only way I was trying to stop him doing anything was stand so close to him, nobody wanted to pass him the ball. Because if he got the ball, he was leaving me for dead. It's that simple. Well, he had that thing of he was going to go the extra mile. Even if we were only journalists playing a game of football together, he was working for French TV. He wanted to win. It didn't matter if you were tossing a coin, he wanted to win. But he was able to sort of park that and say, right, what do I have to do for the team? I can't dribble past these 11 fellas on my own. But what I can do is pass the ball and then make a run that nobody's going to be able to keep up with me and get the ball back. So it's that ability then to analyze um, as we got back to the, you know, the stimuli that you have around you when you're trying to make these decisions. 
It's the ability to analyze them and to execute on them, to go, okay, this is the right course of action here. And this is what's so brilliant about jiu-jitsu. It's the fact that it is, it's chess for the body. And so many sports are like that. Where do you play the ball? Where can you hurt the other team most by playing the ball or passing the ball in rugby, in Gaelic football, in hurling? How can you do these things? And that's how you develop a winning mentality is to work these things out for yourself. Yeah, I think as well, supporters and journalists and stuff need to actually appreciate those people at the top of the, their game a little bit more. And I, I realized that with Ronaldinho a, a few years ago. What, it's probably like 10, 15 years ago now. Like when Ronaldinho signed for Barcelona at the time, you remember he was he was linked with coming to Man United. Obviously, I'm a big Man United fan and I hated him. I was like, yeah. bastard, why didn't he sign for Man United? Why has he gone to Barcelona? And everything he did, I just, oh, he's a show pony. He's no use. But then like uh, a few years later, I realized like, why do I hate him? He's a great player. I'm not. I'm. I'm missing out here by not absolutely loving everything he does. And then, like that, I've always thought about him when people after, apart from like Steven Gerrard and all Liverpool players and stuff, but everyone else, like I think, like we need to show an appreciation for like Conor McGregor, for Habib Nurmagomedov, for Anthony Joshua, for Phil Taylor, for whoever, like all these great because they are rare there's everyone at the top of their game at the moment there isn't like you see a lot of those people at the very top of their game there isn't many people close to them up there at the top of their game even if you look at mma like you have demetrius johnson's the best you have john jones you have mcgregor you have habib coming down after that are there many more like i think daniel Cormier is fairly far away from it and a few more if you want to name i'm probably sure there's a couple more but like do we do you think that appreciation of those top top athletes is actually enough for what they actually do and the the level of brilliance that they actually achieve. I, I honestly don't, Sean. I think that we as fans are spoiled rotten because we're you know every night of the week we can watch Messi, we can watch Ronaldo, we can watch Zlatan, we could watch Ronaldinho, we can watch you know um, who was Arturo Vidal. I saw the other night Sanchez playing against Sweden. You see, you can see all these brilliant athletes. Do you know what I really love about the job that I have is going to the Winter Olympics to sports that virtually nobody in the world cares about apart from the people who are doing them. Right, the South Korean women's curling team winning the silver medal, uh, the cross country team of Jesse. Diggins and kicking Randall winning a sprint really I mean the level of effort and the level of skill and decision making and sheer grit I spoke to Diggins after she won that medal and go YouTube it right she was in third place coming down the hill America hadn't won a cross-country medal at all of any color it only had won a silver in 1976 in Innsbruck right and she was coming down that hill and she she said to me a few days beforehand we're going to win a medal here mark my words we'll win a medal at these Olympics in cross-country skiing and she was coming down that hill and she said to me afterwards she said I was coming down that hill and going a medal's not enough for me anymore I have to have that gold and she won it by a fraction of a second uh, I can't remember who came second I think it was the Swedes but that mentality and we really don't appreciate it and I mean we should appreciate the Cormiers of the world we should appreciate Demetrius Johnson we should appreciate Zlatan and Messi but we should also appreciate the people who make it you know how many professional footballers are there in the world? There's not that many. We need to appreciate the fighters who are on the undercard. We need to see the guys who are on the prelims and say, Jesus, you know, it took an awful lot for these guys just to get to where they are. You know, even semi-professional footballers in the League of Ireland, I have the height of respect for people who play senior Gaelic football or hurling just for their parish who aren't even near the inter-county setup. We need to appreciate the skill and the investment of their own time that they make and their own personal development that they make. You know, really, we should be in awe of every sport person we see whatever level the fact that they get out there across the line at all and as fans we tend to get involved in this polemic like you say you hate Ronaldinho and you hated Ronaldinho for a, for a time because he didn't go to your club right yeah. now I don't like Cristiano Ronaldo as a person but I could sit there and I could just uh, you know 
I'm in awe of his skill, his ability to do things with the ball that I've never seen before at a pace that is just electric, that is just beyond me. And if we can appreciate that and see that, now there's a whole bunch of other stuff. John Jones annoys the shit out of me. I think he's a cheat and I don't think he deserves to be a counter among the greatest of all time. He probably could have been even without the drugs, but I've, I just find it hard to deal with that, to deal with the level of cheating. Like, like the cricket, the guys messing with the cricket balls and that kind of thing. But anybody who goes out there and honestly gives their best, sit back and enjoy it. I mean, can you imagine, what are we going to do when Lionel Messi stops playing football mm -hmm. what are we going to do when conor mcgregor retires or when demetrius johnson retires you know without ronda rousey you know i mean i love amanda nunez an absolutely tremendous fighter her grit and everything else like that i don't love her as much as i love watching ronda rousey i i, I probably wouldn't have a drink with ronda rousey she'd probably bore the pants off you but seeing her go in there throw people over there and get that arm bar that's the most awesome thing you'll ever see in any sport you know and um, the way khabib uh, the fight against was it michael johnson in new york that time when conor beat eddie alvarez that was one of the most awesome displays of wrestling i have ever seen and I'm so grateful and so privileged to have been able to see that from 10 or 12 feet away. And every time I get to see these athletes, whether they be pros or amateurs, as I say, I'm just so grateful for it. And I think fans need to take a step back and say, right, what is it we're looking at here? What, what expectations are we entitled to have? Because if you're watching a fella playing for Bournemouth, maybe you can't have the same expectations as somebody playing for Arsenal. Well, Arsenal are rubbish. But, you know, playing for <laughs> Manchester United or Liverpool or whoever, you know. So you have to set your expectations and say, okay, is this person exceeding them? Is, like, you know, are they entertaining me? Are they doing something that I couldn't do myself, you know? And to treat them with an awful lot more respect than probably what they get at the moment, you know? Maybe before we get into uh, a more negative side of it, I, I've always had this stupid take, I think. And uh, <laughs> I don't know if, you, if you'll agree with it or not, but I've always thought, and and I agree with what you said there. We should appreciate all levels from from the very best to the you know to the the, the prelim fighters and everything. But I've always thought the worst thing you can do is win a silver medal in the Olympics. I I, I that would kill if that was me. It'd kill me. It would oh, absolutely yeah. kill me. Yeah, no, do you know what? I, I agree with you in one way, right? But like, it all depends. If you're uh, Jesse Diggins and you got a silver medal for that day, you're probably going to be enormously disappointed. But I think in time, you're going to realize that, you know, uh, it, it was the best you could do on the day. And it's a very, very special thing. There are so few people can say, I've won an Olympic medal, you know? And like, I've had this thing, I, I object strenuously to this thing of fellas winning, uh, like, they win a silver medal at the FA Cup or whatever it happens to be, right? And they give it away. And they go, to me, it's deeply disrespectful to the team that's just beat you and to everybody else who's tried to do that. You know, you're one of the second best teams that you have to accept that. I fully understand and accept what you're saying. You can be absolutely raging at the loss, but I think if you give it the fullness of time over the course of a career, you know, some days you're just, you're not the best guy or you're not the best girl. Some days somebody else has gone a little bit better than you. You know, there was a Finnish skier called... Um, Ivo Niskanen, and Niskanen had his in the in the men's 50k, you know, and that day he was just better than everybody else, and he beat everybody else off the park, and you can be pissed off if you're Norwegian, and you expected your boy to win the gold medal there, but you know what, you also have to appreciate uh, what Niskanen did on the day, and how deep he dug, and how early he went, he put himself out there with a target on his back for everybody else, and you know, it's kind of like that with the, with the heavier weights in the UFC as well, you know, you look at a guy and you go, oh, you know, well he only defended the belt once, or he never defended the belt, he was beaten straight away, and that kind of thing, well hold on a second, you know, just to get there, to get to the top of the mountain and look down, even briefly, is a tremendous achievement. To get, you know, uh, a lot of people look at Alexander Gustafsson, and I can't understand why a lot of people consider him to be a loser. He, he's been part of some of the greatest light heavyweight fights in history. He's never won the belt, and I know that annoys him greatly. You can't call the guy a loser. He's taken two of the greatest who'll ever do it, uh, the distance in those title fights. You know? so, and I know it bothers him that he didn't win those fights, but you know what? You went in there, you did it. You were never put away, you know? Anthony Johnson might have put him away, but... Do you see what I'm getting at here? Yeah. I think 
when he goes, when he looks back in 10 or 15 years and he takes that shoebox from under the bed, the picture from those fights, I don't think he's going to feel as bad as he did directly after those losses. Because, you know, there's just blackness. There's a horribleness about coming second, about being the second best fighter in the light heavyweight division. But in 10 or 15 or 20 years, when he looks back, I go, hey, there was a whole other bunch of fighters that never even got to the level that he was at. So I accept that in the short term that the silver medal is probably the most horrible thing to happen to you. Uh, I also think that in the long term, maybe you look back at it and go, it wasn't so bad after all. Yeah, I think it's important to not be a bad loser, but it's important also not to be a good loser. You know, you yeah. you know, you have to take it well, but don't take it too well, and, and you maybe use it as motivation. Like for Alexander Gustafsson is actually a great one to bring up because he arguably beat both Jones and Cormier. Both those fights were very close. I'm like, that's the tin line as well. And we, I suppose that's kind of a theme of this podcast. The tin line that that sport at the very top level is is kind of judged on. But yeah. I suppose m- moving on, and uh, uh, we'll get to. Uh, you mentioned drugs in sport. We'll get to that in, in a second, but. The next thing I want to get down, it's, I suppose it's a bit of a, a sore issue and a big issue at the moment, but it's it's Paddy Jackson's tri- uh, tr- and Stuart Holding trial, uh, the rape trial yesterday. If um, Maybe you'd be better to explain it to me if maybe people in in, um, in the States and, and overseas are listening. Two international rugby players up for rape, and it's been in Northern Ireland, obviously, and it's been one of the biggest cases ever in, in the you know the history of, of all the island, hasn't it? For oh, sporting yeah. anyway, at least. Yeah, the attention it got was, you know, it was both immense and horrendous at the same time. I'd start by saying that here in Sweden, where I live, right, there's never a name released of a defendant until the trial is over. And if you're found innocent, your name never comes out at all, you know. And, you know, people would say it's great, you know, Jackson and Olding, they're high profile guys. And, they, you know, they were dragged over the coals for this. And now we know what we know about them. But that, that's great. You know, but it, in certain instances, you know, it's not good. You know, everybody has the right to a good name. Personally, I don't think, you know, if my daughter came home and said she was uh, dating Paddy Jackson, I wouldn't be happy about it i think the evidence that was presented in the trial the whatsapp messages and that kind of thing they show a really really problematic way of talking about women um you know there was no the charge of rape wasn't proven that's not to say that everything that happened was consensual it's just that it couldn't be proved in court the lads got away with them the best they looked at them i hope they learned their lesson from this because the way they talked about women the way they treated this woman and the fact that she wasn't believed by the court she was put through an ordeal there and it's an absolutely awful thing to happen but it opens up a bigger discussion sean that you know the evidence that was presented in the court was basically of these you know very well-to-do rugby players professional athletes who could do whatever they wanted so they could take a girl into a bedroom and if one or two or three or four of them want to have sex with her well then she has to accept that because these these are privileged boys and she's not really entitled to say no and if she does she's gonna have to scream and kick the house down anybody saying that about a rape victim probably doesn't know anything about rape and the way it happens and that kind of thing you know but we're not going to run rerun the trial here in the severe mma podcast um but basically what it did was it showed a side of sportsmanship if we can call it that that's not that great right there is still this thing that in the dressing room and i'm going to hold up my hand now sean and say i was part of it i've mm-hmm. said things and done things in the locker room and i've heard things that i never reacted to that i'm not proud of right and i could say i said it on twitter today i could say that you know oh it's because i have two daughters now that come with it. that's bollocks right i thought about these things and it was fucking wrong the way i talked about women it was wrong there's very little I can do for make up for it, to make up for it now, only to say to other athletes and to other sports fans, it's wrong, right? If you're talking about women, women as whores and bitches and sluts, it's wrong. And if you're going to say that in front of me, I'm not going to have it anymore, right? That's We have to draw the line that we have to start treating not only our opponents with respect, but we also have to tra- start treating everybody around us, women, children, old people, whatever it is, respect is the key to everything. And like cricket,
it. It should be part of our values. That should be just it, that everybody's dignity is not up for discussion, you know? And if you hear people talking like that, you've got to react to it. And especially in MMA, there's going to be a lot of people who say, oh, you know, this, that, the other men are stronger than women and all that kind of thing. It's like, I'm not even having those discussions anymore. That for me is the same place as is MMA a sport, right? I'm, mm -hmm. I'm so beyond all of these things that it's not even going to be discussed now. What we need to discuss now is how we're going to change it. And in a way, the UFC is way ahead on this because they put the women in there. The women have done, like they've shown that they're just as good as the men. The fight between Holly Holm and Misha Tate, absolutely tremendous fight altogether. You know, it, nobody could tell me that men could put on a better fight. It's just as good as any of the men's fights I've ever seen in the game, right? And it was thrilling, great drama, that kind of thing. But we need to change the way we speak about it. You know, I've said about Connor before. Connor says things that I find hugely problematical about women. This time last year, when we were going through the whole thing, maybe not this time last year, but when the whole Mayweather press tour was on, that kind of thing, both of them were a fucking disgrace, you know? So we need to change the way that we talk about these things. It's gradually starting to change. Women's sport is gradually starting to get bigger and bigger. The women's, uh, was the European Championships that the Dutch, Dutch won last year, was a very widely watched event all over Europe. So starting to creep in there we're starting to give them the space and to concede the space to them to allow them to do their own thing and not compare them to men and get on with it but there is this a huge discussion to be had in every locker room if it's at a straight glass gym or if it's at team rhino's gym or if it's at you know the monster rugby dressing room or indeed the ulster rugby dressing room or you know in Tome and Park. anywhere you go we're going to have to have these conversations because it's deeply deeply damaging you know and um, i don't consider this as being a trial where anybody won anything you know, uh, like if Paddy Jackson went off to celebrate or Stuart Holding or the other defenders went off to celebrate, I wouldn't be celebrating. I'd be sitting in the corner thinking about what I put done to put myself in that situation where the Crown Prosecution Service in Northern Ireland had enough evidence to take it to trial at all. You know, that's that's what I'd be looking at. You know, what what kind of a person am I to, to put myself in a situation to do that? And Sean, I'm no angel. You know, if you ask, you know, anytime we sit down in a pub and it's all fair and that kind of thing, I'll admit to things I wouldn't admit publicly and I'm ashamed of them. It's not because I'm trying to play the big man or anything else like that, but it's just tell you know younger younger journalists like Noel McGrath that you know this is not a road to go down I've been down it and I you know, like I'm not proud of it you know yeah I, I think I, I'm kind of someone who's proudly unpolitical and I'm people class themselves as the left and the right and it, it does it a, a, a big and this is a wider point rather than just a trial I suppose but there's there's a lot of you know side picking in, in things like this and and for this especially this is this trial has not been just run in a courtroom it's also been run on social media and there's a there's a tendency for what's happening in reality to move a lot slower than what's happening online if you know what i mean like people are expecting everyone to be perfect and you know every you know i don't care what anyone says if a group of lads get together there's always going to be a bit of chat like obviously it's not going to go into someone getting assaulted or anything like that and obviously these lads get got off as well so we, we must say that but like there's like I think it's unfair as well and it's very unfair on horror especially and on the lads themselves whichever side of it you take like that there was a trial given you know and whatever it was four or five weeks or however long it was and a decision was made and but now their name has been dragged through uh, you know the mire and her name has been dragged through the mire and even though her name isn't supposed to come out but apparently of up in belfast and everywhere it's come out and you know she's yeah. been you know she's been dragged through the mire they've been dragged through the mire and like you know is the like is there a lack of respect for the court or is you know was this just a, a, like a terrible injustice or a, like it doesn't even matter if it was good where people kind of decided anyway what the outcome was before it even the outcome was given 
Yeah, and people tend to wind up in whatever camp they're in. If you think that, you know, that uh, women sort of make up rape allegations just to get at men and that kind of thing, well, then you're obviously going to think you're going to support the boys and they're going to be glad they got off. Whereas if you think that, you know, that they're, like, if, if you believe strongly in the idea of rape culture and the culture has to be changed, then you're going to be disgusted at the thing, you know. But, what you know, I have huge problems with this because, you know, like I think it's Ariel Hawani who calls me the angriest man on Twitter because sometimes when I go off, I sort of take a few people's heads off and that kind of thing. I'm not really, you know, but uh, at times like this... It, it, we live in very confrontational times on social media, right? And what's said is said instantly. You know, I spent uh, the last sort of 48 hours talking to a friend of mine sort of in private about something I said about an article he did. I didn't agree with a particular uh, aspect of his journalism. It's the only thing I've ever criticised for him and he took it very, very personally and it wasn't meant personally. And this is the thing, we live in very confrontational times and you literally have seconds to make up your mind what you think about it and then you find yourself defending a position and you're not going to abandon that position. You're going to try to save face and you're going to try to keep going at it. I'd love to see this. This to me is not a set of rules and regulations that has to be applied. Humanity to me is a conversation. We need to talk to one another about the kind of society that we want to have. Now, we also need to meet people where we are. You'll meet lots of people in MMA and lots of people in soccer who can be a little bit misogynistic. I know a lot of guys who don't think that women should play soccer at all. They think it's ridiculous. That's fine, but don't get in the way of them doing it. You know, let them go ahead of it. So there's a long conversation and we need to try to meet people where they are. We need to try to meet, especially young lads, because young lads and little guys tend to get into rows, they tend to get into these situations and find out for them how we can help them become better boys and better men and how they can be more respectful but I think in general, men and women, we need to show more respect for one another. And in fact, you know, when we're talking about a winning mentality and that kind of thing, this podcast is now turned into a thing about genuine mutual respect. I've always had enormous respect for yourself and Andrew McGahan, as it was at the time, when you started off doing this podcast. It was so informative. I have enormous respect for your knowledge and for the depth of your knowledge and for your passion for MMA. That's not to say that I agree with everything you ever say, Sean, and you know that. But we can always have a respectful discussion about it because that's the point that our relationship has come to. Now, can you imagine if we could do that as a nation or, you know, as a, as a species, you know, if we could have these discussions about these things and that it doesn't have to be so confrontational and it doesn't have to be dependent on one side being wrong and one side being right. If we could just arrive at what it is that, you know, the kind of people that, that we want to be in, the kind of society we want to have. And, you know, I, I, I love the fact that you're, you're sort of apolitical, but every political stance, even being apolitical is a stance. <laughs> yeah. itself. You, know, you, you have a sort of a, uh, what they call a libertarian attitude. You know, you're fairly content to let people do as they do as long as they don't sort of inflict or infringe upon you you know and that's a perfectly logical thing to do you know but everything we say at, at this point in time especially on social media it becomes political regardless even when we sit in the fence it becomes political you know and yeah. no, no, nowhere is that more apparent than when you see in doll air and when they're trying to talk out of both sides of their mouth at the same time yeah um just i suppose the last point is like and and i don't want this to sound like back in my day sort of thing but i think people have changed more say from my generation maybe i'm just about to turn 30 in a couple of months to the people maybe five years younger than me who'd be in you know their mid-20s now like i think say between me and a 40 year old now or a i don't think the difference is as much between me and a 25 year old if you know what i mean or me and a 45 year old even that 15 years between me and the five years after i think the world has changed an awful lot because of the internet and because of you know the I think there's a lot, a lot more people understanding kind of what left and right is. Even myself, like I, I tried to stay out of that sort of thing for a long, long time. And I, if you would ask me five years ago what's left and right, I would not have known. Honestly, I would, and I wouldn't have cared. 
I, yep. I, I don't think anyone at 25 year old these days would know that. I think it's ingrained into people now. Like they know Alex Jones or they know, you know, whoever the leftists, <laughs> you know, the big famous leftists are, the, you know, the Young Turks or whatever. Yep. And it, American politics is seeping into Ireland as well. And I, I don't think, like, the, the fact you know the whole the left and right uh, uh, divide in America is absolutely huge, and you can see it. But it's seeping in here, and we, you know, we always take up so much American culture, and you know, yeah. everyone talks about keeping politics away from sport, but it doesn't. It goes into sport as well, and we, we, you know, I suppose with this whole Paddy Jackson thing and and everything else, uh, it, it really seeps into it. But yeah, yeah. it's 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 just no, it's it's a fascinating yeah. thing because like you know, the, the internet is an accelerant because like all the information you need is at your fingertips, right? And there is is that the hot take thing is incredible that nobody ever thinks you know they don't engage their brain at all before their fingers are hammering away on the keyboard and like i say then you end up defending something that maybe you don't want to be defending or you end up developing a set of values that are easy to to defend you say oh you know it's always a woman's fault if she gets raped or the other way around like i think there's no room for nuance or for thought and that kind of thing like you know this chap i was chatting with the other night on twitter you know and he was saying that you know Zlatan Ibrahimovic they played the swedes played romania the other night right we're basically a second 11 these guys are not going to start the world cup and they were terrible and they got beaten and the whole thing was terrible and your mom was saying oh you know was that going to be a great sort of man to have in this in this squad going to the, to the world cup and i was going yeah but he's injured and you know so it's not like to happen and he went mad at me going he's good enough to play in this squad and i was going yeah, my point wasn't that he's not good enough to play in the squad he's obviously the best player the country ever produced but he's injured and you wind up very very quickly in this polemic which makes it very very difficult to discuss and i don't take debate now anymore i used to argue with people and that kind of thing but you know, I, I kind of make a judgment very quickly now. That if if I can talk to you, if we have some common ground that we can talk about, that's fine. But if you're sort of so embedded in your thing, that I'm not going to convince you. I'm not going to change you. But my thing now is no longer to convince anybody. It's just to get people to think about things. That's all. You know, to make these things into a conversation. Because I don't have all the answers. I know the answers I I have sort of collected by myself over the last forty six odd years on this planet. You know, but it is interesting as well, Sean. The benefit of experience, the older you get, the more you realize that politics is actually more to do. Like every, all politics is local, you know? Mm -hmm. All these things eventually affect you. They affect the wallet that's sitting in your pocket now down in Limerick and, you know, the, the possibilities that you have for that. But it definitely shouldn't be about, you know, digging trenches and getting stuck in there and hanging on to what's yours. You know, my thing has always been, what can we do for everybody that's going to make it this have a better existence? But like you say, it's got to be a situation where, uh, people get they got to get smart about it you know this thing of american politics uh i don't know were you ever over in america watching the ufc i think you were there once right? no i wasn't no i never oh. went to the ufc card in america no okay because like america's and you know uh, niall and pt and all that uh, andrew um uh, graham will tell you you know about how america's totally different like for us as europeans looking at what happened uh with that mass shooting there right and we look at guns we go what on earth is the matter with these people you know and then you go over there and i've been to a shooting range in las vegas with an nra instructor right now he's not you know this sort of the diehard NRA, you know, you'll take my gun from my cold dead hand, right? He just wants people who have guns to be able to use them properly, you know, so they don't shoot themselves or anybody in their family. And when you listen to him, it's a totally different conversation. And I've decided that I know what I think about guns. I don't think that people who aren't sort of military police should have guns. But you know what? I'm going to listen to him anyway, because if nothing else, by the end of the conversation, I'm going to know what he thinks. And my argument's going to be tested, and his arguments are going to be tested. And maybe we won't agree, like the way sometimes you and I don't agree about things. But you know what? That's not the be-all and end-all. We can still be friends, even though we disagree, you know? And in sport, in life, in politics, whatever it is, that's the most important thing, is to be able to respect our differences. I I agree. I couldn't agree more than that. That's why I, when I say I'm I, I'm kind of apolitical, 
it's not that I don't have my views. It's that I I've always you know when I I, I love analysis and everything like whether it's yeah. you know I I grew I did a maths degree in economics and everything I do I look at with an analytical mind kind of and it's the same with MMA and that's why I love MMA so much and the same with soccer and everything. Like when I look at the analysis of politics and stuff like that, I see these people who are hard on the right and these people who are hard on the left and nobody in between telling the truth. That's what I see. And then I try to look at it and pick the bits from each each side and see what the actual truth is. But I suppose that's a that's a discussion for another day. Here is the next thing I want to talk about. Yep. And this is something, another thing that I'm kind of in the middle on, but not in the middle, but I just I'm unsure yet what my what my thinking is. And I, I've thought about it a lot over the last three or four years, and I still don't know. But I think you've strong views, and, and that's PDs and sports. Yeah. Tell, tell us your thoughts on PDs and sports. I despise them, right? And I've been at this for years, you know, in terms of, you know, if you look at the Winter Olympics recently, I was out there, I, I really enjoyed it because I've now got a, a place in my mind where I park the doubt, right? And I try to watch the sport there and I try to enjoy it for what it is. But I know for a fact that certain people that I saw uh, in those those competitions that I covered are doping, right? I know it. I know that I've seen people in the UFC who are doping. I know that I've seen soccer players at the professional level who are doping, right? I absolutely despise it. And it's something that, as I say, I've gone through the whole thing, um, the, the, the TUEs, therapeutic use exemptions, all these things. I've been to Vegas. I've talked to Jeff Nowitzki about it. I've written about Lance, Lance Armstrong for years. I've written about Danish cycling, Bjarne Ries. Uh, you know, I've written about all these guys for years. Right? I just despise it. But in particular, I despise it in MMA. And the reason being that if you're going to go in there and close that cage door and you're on steroids and the other guy isn't, I just think that you just cannot get any lower than that. And this is what kills me about John Jones because... I, I don't despise John Jones as a person, right? I'm sure John Jones does what he does for a reason, whether it's self-doubt or whether it's desire to make money for, for his family so that he never has to work again or whatever. I'm sure there are valid reasons for doing it, but they're still not valid enough for me. This is why the whole John Jones, uh, the goat thing, that it just doesn't wash with me at all, you know? But again, like we were saying with the guns there a few minutes ago in America, America has a totally different culture when it comes to these things. About a block from where the UFC has, head office is in Las Vegas, Nevada, there's a, there's a drugstore there, right? Like a pharmacy like we would have in Ireland. And you can go in there, Sean, and off the shelf, you can pull a supplement that is going to get you banned by USADA, right? This is on the shelf. You, you go in there, you mix that with your milk or whatever, you drink your shake, and that will get you banned. I've looked at the label and the whole lot, and the stuff in there that's banned out the fucking door, right? And yet, it's the performance institutes around the corner, right? This is a new thing for MMA. We all know in the beginning that, you know, there was a lot of guys taking stuff that they shouldn't have been taking. Chael Sonnen was caught. Jones has been caught. There's a bunch of others and that kind of thing. Now, when it comes to marijuana and that kind of thing, you can talk about uh, therapeutic effects and what have you. But cheating, trying to find yourself an advantage, whether it be in cycling or in cross-country skiing or in soccer or in MMA, that is just something that absolutely kills me altogether. So what I'd like to see is a situation where you sign a contract with a professional organization that says if you ever get done for doping, you hand back everything, right? You hand back every medal you ever won. So that would be, you know, the, the great one of the greatest things I ever saw, I come back to it, I did a thesis when I was in college called 9.79. And that was the time that Ben Johnson won in the 100 meters final in uh, the 1988 Olympics, right? Seven of the eight guys who started that were subsequently done for doping. So the greatest sporting event that I had ever seen was a total and utter fraud from beginning to end, right? And this is what kills me about it is because I want to believe. I want to be the seven or eight year old who stood on the mound of muck down in Parnell Park in Dublin, watching 
watching Gay O'Driscoll and Brian Mullins and Jimmy Keaveney training for the Dublin footballers, that's where my love of sport come, comes from. I have no doubt that none of those guys were on drugs playing for the Dubs in the 1970s. I have no doubt they didn't even want to play for the Dubs because they were so bad nobody would watch them. But you know, to see professional sport at the moment and the money that's on the line, but in particular in, in MMA, where you're getting in there to punch the other man in the head, you know. And if you look at you know the, the, sort of the distance that some fights have gone, and you see some fellas who don't slow down at all, even in a five-round championship fight, and you look at that and you just go, you know, I just feel cheated every time I see it. So it's not only the guy across the octagon from them that they're, they're cheating, but they're cheating everybody who's paying the $70 for the pay-per-view. They're cheating everybody on press row. They're cheating you and they're cheating me as well. And it's just something I find utterly disgusting. Uh, my, <laughs> see, my... See, this is where I struggle with it because when you talk there, you, you talk uh, biological points, but you talk ethical points as well. But when I hear people making... The arguments for anti anti uh you know anti-drugs it, it's almost always ethical and that if you want to make that argument fair enough but you know is the evidence there in mma especially that these you know that drugs are making such a big difference like pride it was it was fair game everyone was on it and i didn't see like people are always saying oh someone will get killed when they're on drugs and then you know it'll be the end of the sport and everything or you know someone's going to get killed but it's because they have so much power and look it does it, it can improve your endurance 100 percent and everything but like why is it wrong for people to do it like why can't everyone do it is it just because it's not a level playing field between two different people or is it because say if everyone was doing it would it still be cheating well i don't think so if the rules were that everybody could do it go ahead right if if bellator doesn't have an anti-doping program you're fighting for bellator and you're doping you know what go right ahead i don't care right but if the rules are there right for anti-doping if the rules say you're not allowed to take this list of substances and the list is very very long and then you go ahead and you take one of them knowing that you're seeking an advantage that the other uh, the other athlete doesn't have right now people talk about okay you can talk about talent you can talk about the fact that the norwegian cross-country skiers have any amount of money you're talking millions of euro to prepare them for the uh, the cross-country skiing at the winter olympics whereas the irish guy thomas vescott has nothing right so that's you know economic doping we can talk about all those things as well but i just find it particularly offensive that when it's against the rules right now the therapeutic use exemptions thing is very interesting sean right this came about as a, a swedish scientist called arnold Jungqvist. he was a high jumper himself back in the 50s as far as i remember but he was one of the vice presidents of wada and in the 80s there was a swimmer from australia i think this is correct now but it was an australian athlete definitely who had testicular cancer as a, as a result of that he wasn't able to produce testosterone for himself but he was worried that by taking part and taking uh, testosterone testosterone replacement that he would be found guilty of doping and that was where the first therapeutic use exemption came from and Arne Lundqvist and these other doctors and scientists they turned over all the questions and their ethical thing was that just because this man has been ill doesn't mean that he can be excluded from competition right so it wasn't at the point where he should have been in the Paralympics that you know he was reasonably healthy apart from this one thing and they allowed him to do it now you have that system being abused by cyclists you haven't been abused by cross-country skiers you haven't been abused by pretty much everybody right we talk about this thing of marginal gains in sport if taking asthma medicine uh, on the thursday or the friday or the saturday of a ufc championship fight is going to help you to get through the championship rounds on the saturday night and you take it and you have the tue and that kind of thing that to me is still cheating it's not against the the, the uh the rules but you know have you seen how many professional athletes have asthma i think it's about 10 to 15 percent of the general population but professional athletes loads of them have it you know again soccer players all these guys have it you know so to me it's about the level playing field when uh ponsonibio beat uh, gunnar nelson that time i didn't realize i didn't see the eye poke at the time of the Fight, right and then john cavanagh said it afterwards i looked at it. no i don't know if, if santiago meant to do what he did to gunner nelson if he did it's cheating 
And basically, you know, if you're cheating at any, if you bite somebody the way Mike Tyson bit of Andrew Holyfield, that's cheat. It's just no, you know, it's against the rules. And you know, I, I, I'm saying this as somebody who's never competed at the highest level of anything, right? But I just I despise cheating th that much that you know. It's just, you know, go ahead, go to Bellator or go to, you know, whatever, uh, you know, local show there is there. But when I watch the elite compete, I want to see them compete on a level playing field. If you're better, have more skill, have, work harder, but don't go to a syringe and take a shortcut. Because for a lot of them, it is that. And what I always think about as well, Sean, it's not the guys who are winning the championship belt, you know. We'll say, you know, Daniel Cormier still got the belt, right? But there's some guy on the bottom of that card, clean, making five and five and getting knocked out in the first round. And where's he? He's back working in, in Toys R Us or, you know, Toys R Us has just gone bust, but there you go. He's back working in Taco Bell, you know. And this to me is where, where it's deeply, deeply unfair. It's not just for the guys at the top of the tree competing for the medals or the belts or the trophies. It's for the guys down the bottom struggling to make their way in the game. And there's a cheat somewhere above them who's taking advantage of that. And not only that, I'm sure John Jones wasn't lacking in sponsors in the times before he was busted, you know. I mean, I, have, I actually have every sympathy for him. I know it sounds crazy. I have every sympathy for the troubled man that John Jones is. I think he's been treated disgracefully by his managers and by his handlers and maybe even by the UFC themselves. John Jones is a person who has issues and he needs serious, serious help with those issues. But, you know, at the same time, that still doesn't condone what he did for me, you know. Again, it comes back to respect. It comes back to respecting both John Jones, the problem he has, but also every other fighter in that division who's trying to get to where he is. Do you see anything for the argument to say the rules are wrong? To say that PED should be legalized. They should, like people should be allowed to take things to, to improve their performance. Maybe maybe even out of competition, in, in training, to help recovery, to make them be as as brilliant as they can. You know, we talked about it for half an hour earlier on, how we love people getting to the very top of their game. Like, why are we discouraging people? And, and I'm not saying I agree with this, but I this is a kind of an argument. Why are we discouraging people from something that will help them to get to the very top of their game just because it's against the rules? Like, should we tear up the rules? I don't think so, because if you do that, it changes the nature of what sport is. And it stops it being a competition between athletes or between teams and turns it into a competition between pharmacists, right? Now, I know sports science dietitians, sleeping in oxygen tents, all those things. I know all those things are sort of counter arguments for that kind of thing. But I think somewhere we have to draw the line, right? And the line for me goes with what happened with, you know, young French cyclists and Belgian cyclists trying to get the Tour de France, taking EPO and dying in their sleep, right? You know, the desire to win is so great. And again, I said this to ESPN last night, Zlatan Ibrahimovic's desire to win is all encompassing. Kobe Bryant for the LA Lakers, the same thing. He would destroy his own mother to get another championship ring in the NBA, you know, and when you have people there, we're, we're policing this not for the benefit of the fans, but for our own good. In truth, Sean, I honestly don't think fans care, right? Barry Bonds, the baseball guy who had uh, the, the record for the number of home runs hit in the season, I still know people who think that he was the greatest uh, baseball player of all time, despite the fact that he was subsequently done in the Balco scandal. I still know people who look at Lance Armstrong and go, "Hey, you know what? Everybody else was doped, so he's still the, the goat," you know. And I just, I have a hard time. Not done. Is he, is he not still the greatest because everyone else was doved? You see, you see, we don't know. That's the thing. And we don't know with John Jones either because you know, John went out there. John could very well have been the greatest of all time, but he's he's disqualified himself from the discussion. I don't think that Dinah Cormier is a doper. I don't think that Alexander Gustafsson is a doper. I do think that several other people in the UFC are, but I'm not going to say that because your liable insurance is going to go through the roof, right? Mm -hmm. But th this is the thing. If you change the rules, right, it's like saying, you know, 
as I say, the economic doping, the fact that John Jones has sponsors that are going to pay for him to do a camp in Hawaii or travel to Florida, whatever it is he's going to do, that gives him enough of an advantage already without yeah. adding a syringe into that. And the, the guys who do it, you know, if you look at cycling, for instance, the hundreds and thousands of, of pounds or euros or whatever it happens to be they're putting there to give you this so-called marginal gain, you know, and they sail very, very close to the wind on this. And uh, when the Norwegian athletes went to the Winter Olympics, they had 10 times more asthma medicine than the nearest rival, which I think was the Finns, right? 10 times. They didn't have 10 times more athletes. They didn't have 10 times more asthmatics, but they had 10 times more asthma medicine, right? Now, that's legal because they had the therapeutic use exemptions. And as long as the, the blood values uh, didn't or the urine values didn't uh, go over what's allowed, they were okay to do that. Now, you can ask if that's okay. You know, we're already bending the rules, but I don't think that removing them completely is going to lead us to a situation where, because as I say, I just, I worry about, uh, about cyclists. I worry about athletes themselves because of that desire to win and the necessity of, okay, where do you stop? You know, are you going to take amphetamines before you go into the cage or before you get on the bike are you going to risk you know your most athletes are already operating at their aerobic maximum when they're taking part in middle distance runs or you know the mountain stages of the tour de france and i don't think they can be trusted i honestly don't think you know people do die for their, their sports unfortunately that's the way it goes you know we've seen people who push themselves too far in these things we've seen motor racing drivers look at michael schumacher one of the greatest champions there and unfortunately you know his life has been destroyed by a sport we're already prepared to take so many risks that i do think that this is necessary to sort of keep everybody sort of you know that's why i wouldn't open it up to the general public that's why i wouldn't open it up to okay look at take whatever you want it's a very appealing thing and logically it solves the ethical dilemma but i think we need to work harder on the ethics and the understanding of what it is to take part in sport and that you know the olympic spirit don't get me wrong i think the olympics is nonsense there's an immense amount of corruption there as well but i still believe in the ethics at the heart of it as i say i'm still a little kid in parnell park who believes that it's possible to do these things without throwing the baby out with the bathwater and just taking everything we can that that yeah that's uh, it's a fair enough uh, it's a fair enough position to hold as well. I I want to end this conversation with a bit of soccer talk, but kind of a segue from that. You mentioned there kind of financial doping, and I actually think doping is financial doping in a way because the people with the most money will get the best drugs. Yep. And where is the most money in soccer? Yet we yep. never, hardly ever see anyone failing the drugs test. Like I, Colo Toure failed one, and he kind of got off with it. Some, you know, uh, Adrian Mutu back in twenty years ago failed one. I, I've, I can't think of many people who failed drugs tests. Like even in the last five years, think about it. Yet there's money everywhere in soccer. Like, what is the? You probably know more than me because you, you'd cover a bit as well. Like. What's the doping standards like in soccer? I don't believe that people getting to such a high level are trying to maintain it. You know, someone who maybe is 30 years of age and they're not the same as they were when they were 25. Like, I, I can't believe that of the hundreds and thousands of professional soccer players playing at the top level in Europe and across the world that almost nobody ever dopes and they're never caught. Like, is it just a joke doping in soccer? Is it just it does it go on blindly, or is it is it clean? I suppose is a is a question I could ask. Uh you know, it's very hard to say. Like, I don't want to point the finger at anybody. I believe that it's, it's. I wouldn't say it's rife. I wouldn't say it's like it is in soccer or, sorry, in cycling. But I do believe that there's an awful lot of it and it's not getting caught, right? Um, it's like, if you go back to the 80s and the 90s in the NBA, the National Basketball Association of America, right? And, like, then the late 80s, early 90s, if you look at the bodies some of those guy, guys had, right? And you just go, 
that that's not possible. Mm-hmm. Especially if you look at them when they went to college and they had no money to buy these things with, right? And I see soccer as being in the same way. But the level of sophistication in what they're doing, right? You know, we laugh when we talk about oxygen tents. We laugh when we talk about, you know, you're putting blood into vials and then you're spinning it around a high speed so it's going to uh, be able to take up more oxygen then you're putting back in the body, you know? But these are the kind of things that are happening and that they're very, very difficult to detect, right? Football is worth billions and billions and billions, right? The day my friend signed for Manchester United, played only one game, he told me he was pretty much financially independent for the rest of his life, right? He was a teenager, Sean. So, mm-hmm. what you know, the money that's there for doing these things, uh, it, like it's just the, the stakes are so high that I can't see a way where this is not happening. I heard of a case today where there was an American girl who played in Russia. She was loaned out from an American club to Russia to get more playing time and experience. They gave her vitamins and she came back and she had a blood test and she would have been banned for three different substances if it had been done by USADA, right? So this is the kind of thing Tony uh, Tony Cascarino wrote in his autobiography about when he played in France uh, about getting these vitamin injections or injections. And the players never asked and they were given these injections. He didn't know what was in it. Jay-Z felt great after it, you know? So I do think that now there's a level of sophistication about it. I would have to ask about the use of recreational drugs in, uh, in certainly in European soccer because that almost never comes up at all. And I know I've heard enough things about cocaine in soccer to, to, to know that, you know, this is something that it's not unknown if we put it that way, right? Um, marijuana usage is quite um, well known in the NBA. They're trying to crack down on it in the NBA and the NFL and this kind of thing. Well, I've no idea why. It can help a little bit with recovery, but it's certainly not performance enhancing. But, you know, all of these things that crop up in soccer, you know, but like you say, it never seems to be found out. And there's a lot to be said there for, you know, do we really know? I know USADA gets a terrible hard time because, you know, when they test a guy, say if they test a fighter and they come up with something and it's always a tainted supplement or it's always beef from Mexico or China. And these are the things. And I've been listening to these things for 20 years and eventually it all comes out in the wash. You know, I think it was Chad Mendes who kind of came out and said, look, I did it. I'm sorry. You know, or he took the supplement and didn't check it and that kind of thing. Like mm-hmm. I say, if you can buy things off the shelf that are going to put you over the limit for USADA, then you've only got yourself to blame. But I do think it's almost systemic, certainly in some clubs that I've seen around Europe and that kind of thing, that I do think there's a systemic aspect to it, that they're sailing close to the wind, that they're using the TUEs, they're using the asthma medicines, and they're using growth hormones and that kind of thing. And that, you know, a, a, a substance only becomes illegal when it's banned. Right. So certain things with your blood levels and that kind of thing that affect the blood levels, they can also you can also do that without being able to specify the substance. But there's an awful lot of work to be done there in terms of deciding what it is acceptable and what isn't acceptable. And to be honest, I start with the TUEs. I think there's so many therapeutic use exemptions out there. The people diagnosed with asthma, they have no asthma whatsoever. They talk about trying to prevent asthma. You know, asthma medicine is not going to prevent asthma. It's just nonsense. You know, I think we need to start with that TUE thing. I'd love to know if there's any Russian hackers listening to the podcast this evening. <laughs> The WADA figures, I'd love to know a little bit more about what they can find out about uh, professional soccer in Europe because I do think that, you know, we know that Lionel Messi was given growth hormones when he was younger as a teenager, but that was just to make him normal because he had problems with, uh, with with his leg growth and that kind of thing. But I do think that there's an awful lot of it out there in terms of just day-to-day stuff, in terms of recovery, in terms of being able to increase the aerobic capacity and that kind of thing. And to be honest, that's kind of another thing I said earlier on the podcast was that I'd fallen out of love with the professional game because it is dirty and people are doing things there. Agents are doing awful things, you know, in terms of how they move players around. Unfortunately, often what you hear, you know, Sean, yourself as a sports journalist, you hear things that you can't put out there because nobody's going to uh, nobody's going to sort of commit to doing this on the record or that kind of thing. So you won't be ever able to check it and that kind of thing. Well, I mean, stuff I've heard about transfers, you know, including one Premier League player there at the moment, stuff that would just make your eyes water, but you can't prove it, you know. And the same thing goes for doping. I think it's much, much more widespread. And if we're sitting down watching Super Sunday on Sky or if we're watching BT Sports or whatever, we have to do it in the knowledge that maybe what we're 
we're being offered is not what it says on the tin. Yeah, uh, 100%. Right, I, I want to get three predictions from you before we go. I think we need to make this a regular team thing. I've enjoyed this an awful lot. I think we need to do this every couple of months uh, if, if you're up for it. And I'm sorry for I've kept you so long. It's, it's been good, though. No problem. Three, three predictions here. Right. Yes. Who's going to win the World Cup this year? Spain. It's, I was actually looking at their team yesterday, and they have an unbelievably good team. But I'm not sure about the amount of goals they're going to get. Diego Costa, okay, he's a great striker and everything. And I think Asensio and Isco were playing in the forward positions yesterday. But I think Iniesta now is getting on. Javi is gone. They have Thiago Alcantara in there. Yep. I don't know. Are they going to score enough goals to win it? The thing with them is, right, and this is what they have that no other country really has, right? They've created a kind of football that is now in their DNA, right? When I was growing up, Spain were brilliant. And there were Emil Butragueño and Nadal, all these guys you could, you could watch, like, you know. But they, they always choked at the very last, you know, at the, at the final mm-hmm. hurdle in the World Cup, the European Championships and that kind of thing, right? And But now, since then, like this revolution that Barcelona and Real Madrid have had, they all play the game the same way. They develop footballing intelligence, right? These guys are so well-versed in how to play their way out of the situations. A friend of mine who played uh, professional football uh, in in Spain was only saying the other night, uh, Spain were in a situation in, in one of those recent friendlies, and he said, I was sitting there thinking, now this is a pro- professional soccer player, and he's thinking, they'll never get out of there. They can't, they'll have to hit the ball long. And they just went, tack, 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 and the ball was out. I was going, ah, oh, here. And eventually, two days later, he sent me a text message. I said, oh, you know, your man there, he should have been pressing the keeper and not, and not the defender. That was why it worked. I said, yeah, but they still did it. And they identified that, and it took you two days to do it. And he's a professional soccer soccer player who'd be known for his, his ability to read the game so they have so many great players this is the thing like soccer in particular is a game of solving problems of time and space and nobody does that like spain and you know what even if they don't win it they're still going to be the best team there you know messi is still the joker he can still do what he wants you know if you look back at you know portugal the last european championships they were a terribly negative team despite having the great one of the greatest uh creative players of all time cristiano ronaldo there but spain just have this soccer dna at the moment that i don't think it's going to be beatable for the next two or three years yeah Actually, I'm going to add in another one. What about England? Where do we? Where do England? Like, I I think England have a, an absolutely terrible squad at the moment, the worst they've had in years. But I think that like the front players, if they can get them together and playing well, if they can get Kane, Ali, Sterling, and Rashford all together in the one team playing well, and maybe play five at the back and are very defensively sound. I I yep. no, I don't think they have a chance of winning or anything like that. But I don't think. I think they could do better than they've done with previous generations of players that didn't gel well together and were kind of individuals more than anything else. I think all those guys are willing to play in a team and it could actually work out for them a little bit better, but no, I'm probably totally wrong. They'll be rubbish. I don't know. I mean, I think you might be onto something there. I think the biggest problem they have at the moment is the fact that Harry Kane is not fit, right? But I'm going to tell you a story now from when I first moved to Sweden, right? Sven-Jörn Eriksson had just won the league with Lazio about a year and a half, two years after I got here, right? And the first sort of journalism job that I was offered over here was writing for a website that was being funded by some of his backers, right? And the idea was that he was going to talk to me every week and I was going to write up the articles and put them out there. And then he got the England job, right? I remember saying uh, to his people at the time, look, at there's a book by a guy called Niall Edworthy called The Second Most Important Job in the Country. And the most important job in England is the Prime Minister of Great Britain. And mm-hmm. the second most important job, and I said, he is going to be hammered and I'm going to kill him. And, you know, nothing is ever going to be... And by God, did he ever get a rude awakening. But there's a sort of a thing there with the press, uh, Sean, the pressure that they put on those players. And yeah. I hate dealing with the England team. I've covered them at, at uh, two European Championships. I covered them. I've never covered them in the World Cup. But they're a pain in the backside because they just don't like talking to the press because they know anything they 
say is going to be twisted and it's going to be sort of you know shoehorned into this thing and they might be popular for the first two group games but as soon as the pressure starts the press crack and the players crack and everything falls to shit and this is why they, get, they only get as far as the quarterfinals that said Gareth Southgate is a very very intelligent man right and like you're saying there he would be happy enough to go you know what we won the World Cup in 1966 we're not that good anymore we're going to play five at the back we're going to play four in front of them and we're going to put Harry Kane up front there in his own and he's not going to see his own goalkeeper for the 90 minutes you know and that would be the kind of thing that it'll get them uh, you know it might get them some distance in the tournament if they got to the semi-finals like they did in 1990 they'd be delighted with it but the funny thing was the way they got knocked out in France by Iceland and I think everybody in the world was surprised except me because I've been watching Iceland for years and this was coming like Spain's football DNA Iceland have their own football DNA they have a very sort of cynical way of playing uh, they get their play out there they like to play a long ball into a counter-attack and that kind of thing if you try to counter-attack them watch iceland now during the summer you try to counter-attack them they'll pull somebody down somewhere they'll kick the first one they have a chance to kick they're happier to concede the free kick than they are to give you the ball in the open field right so keep an eye out for that but if england can adopt some of what they saw from uh, from iceland at euro 2016 it's a much more realistic chance they have what costa rica did uh, in the world cup in 2014 i called it uh, the, the, they're called the ticos i used to call it tico taka instead of tiki taka <laughs> they were that kind of thing as well, win the ball, counter attack, and go. And their forwards were terrible as well. You know, they were terrible. They weren't terrible. They were good players, but they didn't really try to attack that much. So I don't expect a surprise from England. I love to see a competitive England team at the World Cup. I never want to see them win it, obviously, but I love to see a competitive team at the, at the World Cup because uh, it just makes it more crack when they finally do go out. Yeah, I always thought knocking the ball long to Andy Carroll was the future for England, but unfortunately, he's in. Might still be that. <laughs> hopefully, hopefully. Uh, all right, the second to last one: Who wins? Habib Nurmagomedov, Tony Ferguson next week. And I'll give you, I'll throw in Rose and I'm a Yunus, uh, Yuan in Jajek as well. What's your prediction? Yeah, um, the, the, the second fight, I don't even want to call it. I'm looking forward to that one so much. It's going to be like Christmas Eve next week, you know. Um, I'd love to see Rose win it because I know Johanna's going to come back even stronger, you know. Uh, I think she got a fright first time around, you know. She wasn't really be prepared does this rose has this in, real intense violence about her it's really really quiet but my god when she opens it up when the court goes off that like you know that was one of the most amazing things i've ever seen a bit like when amanda nunez beat um ronda rousey that time it was just incredible the violence that she brought and the way she brought it so quickly um Khabib for me is the rising star you know I mean Tony's fantastic well-rounded game great jiu-jitsu uh, really creative jiu-jitsu well able to strike and that kind of thing but I've yet to see a UFC fighter like Khabib gets gets he gets hit in the way in and that kind of thing but his neck is, is huge nobody's ever you know really looked like they were going to knock him out with one shot and once Khabib closed the, the distance we're actually at the gym today teaching the kids self-defense and showing that thing of closing the distance and when he hugs your legs and he starts to press you and you're up against the cage and it's like you know it's like being attacked by a good boar constrictor you know and sitting there watching michael johnson round after round after round michael johnson's a very good fighter he's a gatekeeper now in the lightweight division you know because they know he's going to give people a test and khabib just slaughtered him you know and really i'm saying that because i want to see khabib against connor i think connor's been out of the octagon too long the game changes very very quickly you know i'm not gonna there's no way i'm gonna question conor mcgregor you know if he says he's gonna do something we all know that he can deliver on it but that would be a fascinating fight i mean we always say styles make fights you know and khabib being such a tremendous wrestler uh, you know, people from that, from his part of the world are tremendous wrestlers. Wrestling is their thing. But I just want to see, you know, how Connor would solve the problem with Khabib because it'd be fascinating to see Owen Roddy, John Kavanaugh, Connor, Artem putting their heads together and seeing if they can really beat him and keep him at arms. Like Connor's takedown defense is tremendous. You know, there's a great uh, YouTube clip out there about it. But, you know, either way, I, you know, Tony obviously has a chance, but I think Khabib is just going to be, he's just going to swarm him and suffocate. Yeah. And you kind of answered my last question there, but I, I'd say that's what you want next for Connor. What do you think will be next for Connor McGregor? Could it be Floyd Mayweather? Will it be MMA? Will it be heavy? 
Will it be Tony? Will it be GSP? What do you think? The, the Floyd Mayweather thing, I, Floyd Mayweather is never going to fight in MMA, right? Because you know, he has too much to lose. You know, he's 50 and I was a boxer. Floyd Mayweather could go to, he's just generating interest in Floyd Mayweather. And the next thing we'll find out that he's opened his own casino in Las Vegas. That's the way I see that going, right? Um, Connor has two choices right now, right? <laughs> Who was it was saying to me recently? Somebody in the UFC was saying that the problem with Connor is Connor has $100 million, right? Mm -hmm. and, and as long as Connor has $100 million, Connor's not that hungry to do anything. They have to suit him rather than the other way around. And, um, you know, I think Connor is looking at that, but like Connor's not a foolish man. You know, Connor doesn't really take risks. He took a risk in shooting for a takedown on Nate Diaz and it was pun and it was punished. But then when he came back, the tactical fight that Connor fought against Eddie Alvarez was absolutely superb. He negated everything that Eddie had to bring to the table there. Can he do the same thing against Khabib? I don't know, because Khabib's a juggernaut. He doesn't take a step backwards and at any time in the fight. But we could very well see Connor become Connor McGregor Incorporated. The last time I met Connor in Dublin, just before uh, the, the documentary that Graham and the lads made was put out, we only talked about money. We never talked about fighting, who was next or anything else like that. At the very end, uh, Dave was there, uh, Yogurty Dave Fogarty was there taking pictures. And myself, Dave and Connor just had a quick little chat at the end. And I said to Connor, I said, are we going to be in uh, New Year's Eve in Las Vegas this year? Or what are we doing? You know, he's going, we'll see. We'll see. And he wasn't giving nothing away in that kind of thing. Connor has $100 million. Connor loves to fight. But I think Connor, he's one of these guys, kind of like Zlatan Ibrahimovic is. He comes from a relatively, uh, like it wouldn't have been a very sort of a rich background. And now Connor is about making as much money as he can for his family. We all know he's a very family-oriented guy. But uh, it would be fascinating. If he only ever fights one more time at the Octagon, I think we all want to see him fight against Khabib. Yeah, I went on a rant on it about a month ago, or maybe a little bit more. If, if that Conor McGregor, Habib Nurmagomedov fight doesn't happen, it's a tragedy. And yeah. as a, uh, you know, go on. I think the game owes us this. We always have this thing when a fight is cancelled, when somebody gets injured in fight week and that kind of thing. This is why we can't have nice things. If we got that one nice mm. thing in our life, Sean, I would never complain ever again. And not only that, but I mean, after the, the media call last night between Khabib and Tony Ferguson, can you imagine the crack today? Yeah. <laughs> <three months ago? laughs> and here, here we're eight days away from uh, Hibnibi Mermegamedov taking on Tony Ferguson. <laughs> so maybe that won't even happen. Don't count your chickens yet. Across the two to get into the octagon now, you know. So we, we we hope we live in hope. Yeah, I was going to prepare my uh, my size up video for it, and I was like, no, no, I like give it another few days. I don't want to. Yeah, I don't want to. I don't want to. The training, you know. hundred <laughs> percent. Oh, right, Philip. Thanks very much. I I can't thank you enough. I've I've kept you here for an hour and a half now. I really really enjoyed it. We have to make this a regular thing. Uh, hopefully everyone enjoyed it. Tell the people where they can find you on Twitter, Instagram, wherever website, whatever you you want to plug. Now's your time. Tell you us. can find me at Philip O'Connor on uh, Twitter. You can find me at Philip Eblana. Eblana Communications is the name that uh, my, my company here in Sweden. Eblana was the settlement that existed where Dublin is before the Vikings came and founded Dublin. So it's a little bit of a right hook behind the ear to the Swedes here. So that's at Philip Eblana on Instagram. And you can find me, yeah, it's mostly on Twitter and Instagram. You're going to be hearing about the other things. A lot of the work goes out through the Reuters news agency, but you'll find me on RTE, and you'll find me on ESPN. You'll find me anywhere anybody wants to have a chat about sport, not least here on Severe MMA on Patreon with Sean. Beautiful, Philip. Thanks very much. Hope everyone enjoyed it, and we'll see you all next time.